Hello, everyone. This is the Network Collective Community Roundtable, and today we're talking about IPv6. More specifically, we're going to discuss what it takes to run an IPv6-only network. Why now? And why not dual stack? Well, in the middle of November, the U.S. government put out a memo outlining their updated guidelines and expectations for IPv6. In it, they mandated a future vision of 80% of devices connected to IPv6, our IPv6-only networks, by 2025. That's not that far away. So many of our peers who work in U.S. federal organizations are preparing for a world that is IPv6 only. We figured it might be time for us to do the same. So before getting started, I wanted to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's episode. Uh, first up is Blue Cat Networks. Blue Cat is a first-time sponsor, but a long-time friend of the show. And they're putting together some great content and a great community surrounding the topics of DNS, DHCP, and IPAM. Also sponsoring the episode today is a returning sponsor, Unimus. Unimus produces an easy-to-use but powerful network automation and configuration management solution. It's designed for fast and easy network-wide deployment. And we'll be sharing more details about each of our sponsors later on in today's episode. So joining Tony and I today are a couple of individuals who have some experience in running IPv6-only networks and what it takes to get there from the IPv4 and dual-stack networks that are deployed today. So first up is Nick Baraglio. Nick, I think you were on our very last show, so it hasn't been long since you've been on, uh, but you have uh, you have relevant experience here, so we're glad to have you back. Uh, how was yeah. your holiday break? Excellent. Very relaxing. Took a couple, two weeks off and did nothing, basically. Right. It was pretty great. <laughs> That's perfect. That sounds exactly what you want holiday break to be. And uh, joining us for the first time um, is Scott Hogg. I'm super excited to have Scott on the show. Scott is a co-founder of Hexabuild.io. He's an author. He's a podcaster. And uh, overall, IPv6 aficionado. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. All right, good deal. So Nick, I want to start with you. Uh, we've had some discussions about this specific memo uh, just recently. And, and so what's the big deal about this OMB memo? I mean, I, there's been ones in the past, right? Are they, is this different or is this like other ones that have been ignored or what's the, what's the story? So there have been uh, previous uh, mandates, uh, memorandums that have been signed um, that sort of dictate, you know, IPv6 enablement across federal networks. Uh, I believe, I don't remember the exact date. It was uh, 10 years ago, I think ish. Um, and, you know, back then it was 10 years ago, right? So it, by the nature of what technology was available, it didn't have as much teeth. Um, you know, it, it, the requirements were a lot less. There were easy ways to sort of work around and still meet the requirements without, you know, really following what I personally believe was the spirit of the of the memo. And um, and this one, which was just signed, so I think it came out in March as a draft. Uh, March 2020, and it was signed on, I believe, November 19th um, into official, you know, status. It is very detailed. Um, it has deliverable dates. It has requirements uh, that are very clear, um, and it addresses almost every aspect that you could think of that would be, you know, a potential thing that you need to think about. So it gives you a very nice framework to work in uh, as far as like going through what's required to actually accomplish the goal. So it, it really, I think if I had to sum it up, sum it up personally, I would say that this one um, enables you to succeed rather than just sort of demands that something happen. Yeah. I, I mean, so the the statements you made about the you know the specific timelines that was very obvious like it's it's very detailed i felt like it was very clear about you know like this is the way it's going to be and then also like if there are exceptions there's a path for an exceptions but it's not a super easy path like it's not like a oh i can just you know raise my own flag and say nope this doesn't run ipv6 and i don't have to worry about it there's like you got to go through a process so it seems like this has a bit more teeth than what we've seen before, at least out of our federal federal mandates. Now, Scott, I mean, there's been other flag days, right? Other other times where, you know, maybe not federal government, but other people have declared we're going to turn off V4. So this isn't the first time we've seen something like this. Where else has this happened? 
Yeah. I mean, although, you know, we had Y2K, that was a definite date. You know, we've had, right. you know, DNS flag days to try and improve, you know, the DNS infrastructure. Um, yeah. There's the state of Washington here in the United States has a policy 300 where they'd like to turn off IPv4 by December of 2025. Yeah, that's a goal. Uh, China has a hundred percent IPv6 deployment by 2025 goal. Uh, there's a there's a just a flippant IPv4 flag day of February 1st, 2030. Um, but this OMB mandate brings the U.S. federal government in line with other countries around the world that are striving for this. And yeah, like you said, it's a the the memorandum has a process. You know, teams have to get organized. They have to build a plan. They have to build a lab environment where they can test how devices will run IPv6 only. And then they'll start to move forward with, you know, striving to eliminate some IPv4 from the network. Now, these examples, they all kind of land at the same spot, which which is, I guess, not a surprise, right? Mm -hmm. 2025 seems to be the goal. 2020. And like from a federal perspective, that doesn't seem like a very long runway. Um, no, I mean, that's not happen very quickly. Yeah, that's pretty soon. I mean, we have certain countries and states who want to, you know, move to less gas powered vehicles, more electric vehicles. And those are way out there. Those are like 2035, 2040, 2050. This is, you know, just four years from now. <laughs> Right. That was the thing I think that most surprised me was how aggressive the timeline was. Now, I think in fairness, when we look at this and say, okay, you know, that's a short time frame, but we've all known that it's coming. Um, I, I called out my ISP today because, you know, IPv6 is old enough to drink and it's still not implemented. Like, come <laughs> on, like what's going on? Like, why do I not have IPv6 at home yet from an ISP? Like, I mean, like that's a, that's something that, you know, there's all kinds of economics and I get it, but man, it's frustrating to see from that. So, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, but at the same time, there's been a, just kind of a general, I don't know, that just a, a lack of willingness or uh, a desire to move in that direction, right? And so now we kind of need a mandate like this to kind of get the ball rolling, it feels like, because otherwise it just is never going to happen. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always kind of baffled me. I mean, if you think you're an IT professional and you work with IPv4 and you make your living on an IPv4 network. You you think you'd want to learn the next version. <laughs> you know, if you think you know proficient as, as a network engineer, security engineer, sysadmin, devsec, netops person, and you do that on v4, why not learn the new version? Some people are just resistant. But I think once they learn about IPv6, their fear and trepidation reduces. And they're like, oh, is that all it is? That's not so bad. Yeah. But it's that you know, first, you know, uh, getting over that first hurdle. I, I think you said something very key there, which is the fear. Mm -hmm. um, I, I definitely feel that fear is um, is a, is a first of all, fear is a, a human emotion. That's a human driver to keep someone away from something. That's not a business driver, right? Businesses mm -hmm. don't have fear. Humans do. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think that it's scary is the engineers and operators who need to build, design, and operate these networks they are the ones that carry that fear. And mm -hmm. I think it's kind of like not surprising. We, like when we sit back and we say, why hasn't IPv6 been implemented yet? Well, it shouldn't be surprising. It's because it's so damn scary. Um, yeah. so, so, but I would say, why is it scary? Well, it's because we teach our kids and our children ever since they're little, right? The base 10 numbering system. Mm -hmm. and, and that base 10 numbering system, even though it's represented in binary on the wire, but that's how we represent IPv4 addresses, right? Is mm -hmm. base 10. Yeah. Um, so now what we're doing is we're taking adults and trying to retrain them into, no, no, no. Now when you count, you're going to include, you know, what, what is it? Five letters? You know, now you're on the base 16 counting mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And it's just like reading a foreign language. And when anyone does that, it generates a little bit of fear, anxiety. So if you can still accomplish your job, whether it's application deployment, network engineering, bringing up new sites with IPv4, and there's this shadowy, scary thing in the corner called IPv6, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're the type of person that just wants to go over there and achieve it just to enlighten yourself, why would you do it? Yeah. I think well, so let me, let me, let me uh, respond to that because the two things, one, I don't think it's scary. I think it's just an unknown, right? And it's, 
an amount of work that is perceived to be unnecessary by certain people. Now, I'm old enough to remember when there was dissent uh, around turning off protocols. We can't turn off IPX. How's the netware stuff going to work? Right. And so we can't turn off Apple talk. Then all the, you know, the creative department won't be able to do whatever they do. And so it's funny to me to see this very significant apprehension on turning on, uh, you know, something that is just a little bit different. And once you get to learn it, once you know it, nine out of 10 people, once they learn the fundamentals of IPv6, go, I don't want to touch V4 anymore. Like that is a dumpster fire compared to this over here, right? This is actually hierarchical. It makes a lot of sense. But again, it's the change, right? So I can't turn off IPX because then my print spooler won't work or whatever. But we've been running how long without those with no issues, right? And I think the problem here is that the gap of running these multiple routed protocols inside our networks was too long before we implemented a new one, right? If we would have pushed, if V6 would have been ready in the hardware and the software stacks, which let's be honest, that's why it didn't, that's why it didn't make a lot of headway because, you know, the eternal excuse of no one's asking for it. Well, no one's really ever going to ask for it, right? Because they don't know that it's important. And so it didn't get implemented. And so a whole generation of engineers is around that has never worked with anything other than IP. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got this whole thing that you're comfortable with, right? And so there's an unknown over here, you know, you can't see it, but there's an unknown over here to the right that is this other thing. And now I have to learn this other language, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we forgot how many days it took us to learn IPv4 subnetting. Slash 28 or slash 27. Oh, I can't use the all zeros. The, what's the first usable address? Oh, I got to save this for the broadcast address. You know, it really took us five days to learn IPv4 subnetting. Slash 27, slash 29, slash 26s. And if you just spent three days learning about IPv6, you'd be like, man, this is a breath of fresh air. But we all breathed a sigh of relief that first time when we unhooked the EIGRP protocol dependent module for Apple Talk or the PDM for IPX. And we were like, ah, so much simpler now. We're running only a single network protocol in our infrastructure, and it's IPv4. This is simple. And that's what we're talking about, IPv6 only. Like, wouldn't it be simple if there was only one? Because that's the, that's the downside of dual stack. Dual stack is not the point of arrival. Dual stack is a transition strategy to get to v6 only, where you will only need one. Because And the, the downside of running two protocols is everything's got to be done twice. I'm going to turn up a new server. Oh, I need an address. I need a V4 address. I need a V6 address. Oh, I got to put it into DNS, A record and a quad A record. Oh, pointers. Got to add a V4 pointer and an IPv6.arpa. Uh, oh, I got to put it in the firewall tables. I got to build a V4 object. Now I got to build a V6 object. Now I got to build a group. Now I got to put it in the firewalls. Now I got to test it. I got to ping it over V4, ping it over V6, trace out over V4, trace out over IPv6. You guys get what I'm going at going, you know, it's a mess running dual. And so if you could have the simplicity of only running one and yet still have the users do exactly what they need to do, and it all just happens behind the scenes, there's only one, That's that seems refreshing. Yeah. And I think you've made a nice segue into um, a point that I was going to make later, which is if you go and read the OMB mandate, it's very clear that simplification, operational simplification is their goal. Mm -hmm. They want to run one protocol, so they only have to support one protocol. And you're right. And I'm going to blow your mind here, Jordan, because you're not going to believe this is going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> but dual stack is as much a translation or a transition mechanism as NAT was. NAT was a mechanism to get us <laughs> a little bit more out of the rusty junker that we needed to drive still before and then dual stack plus nat then just v6 right so they're all stepping stones stack as a missed opportunity and so when i say that a missed opportunity much like much like you know nat helped us save 
you know, some address space and helped us prolong or, or delay the, the inevitable exhaustion, right? Mm -hmm. We had dual yep. stack available to us for how long now? Most people have not taken advantage of it. And now we're kind of at the point where we've hit the end. We need to start thinking about V6 only networks. And all that time you could have been spending, like actually learning how it works with, mm -hmm. with no real operational consequence. Now, all of a sudden, now, now we're down to the wire and now the change is going to be complete. It's not going to yep. be any, it's not going to be an either or. And so like, I think that I, I see, I see both of what you guys said and, and seeing the, the operational simplicity of a single protocol. And you're right. That is the destination the ultimate goal is to get rid of IPv4 period mm -hmm. in the story. Like that's the ultimate goal. But I think we missed an opportunity to implement V6 in a more calm fashion, a more organized fashion in a more meticulous fashion. If you aren't running dual stack now, it's already kind of too late. Um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely too right. late if you're a federal agency. And so, and so yeah. here we are. So maybe, I mean, I think one of the big arguments, right. And I, and you both said that once you've learned IPv6, you kind of like the, the fear goes away and all of a sudden there's, you can see the benefit. So maybe it would make sense to take just a minute to talk about now, you know, Scott talked about the, the operational benefit of a single protocol, but what about V6 itself? What, it, running a V6 only network, like what if if I'm an engineer and I'm trying to pitch this to my management, this is why we're doing it, other than federal mandate. Mm -hmm. wh why? Like what are the what are the purposes? Like what what's the value? Yeah, you need a globally unique address space to have you know global communications. You know, you go to roll out a new cloud infrastructure. And the DevOps groups just used all the 10 space for all the VPCs and all the Azure VNets. And they just used 10 space and they didn't check with anybody. They're like, wait a minute. Oh, now there's another NAT. Oh, there's an IoT network. We have a lighting control system. Well, that means the vendor says use 1.0.0.0 slash 8. Okay. Well, the, the facilities folks went and did this thing. And you're like, whoa, wait, hang on a second. There's a registration process for IPv4 addresses like that you totally didn't follow. Now we have a problem. Um, and so no NAT, you know, makes everything better. But, you know, we've perpetuated this use of, you know, NAT 4.4. So we're also, you know, kick the can farther down the road to the point where, you know, we're dependent on ever increasing prices of IPv4 address space. Um and so I often say, if you need address space, you should buy it today. It's never going to be cheaper than it is today. It goes up about 20% every year. If you have addresses to sell, wait, because they're going to go up more. And no investment are you likely to have that guarantees 20% you know, year over year annual increase. Um, you don't have to purchase carrier grade NAT, large scale NAT devices. And V6 can have some performance improvements depending on the nature of the application and if it has affinity to mobile. Um, yeah, so you've you know, many enterprises have kicked the can down the road so far with NAT. And during that dual stack operational phase, you have increased administrative burden. So you want to reduce that phase as much as possible. But if you can jump all the way from V4 to V6 only, you've saved yourself a lot of work. And so that's the, and you, if you can just move from V4 to V6, skip the dual stack phase. And now you're, we're further along now, and it is feasible in some places to do that. Huge cost savings. So, because that's what the business case and what you would tell your pointy haired boss, <laughs> why you want to do this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, I think that it's hard to quantify in dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where the problem lies, because we can just keep throwing gnats all over the place. Right. And it comes down to, um, you know, operational overhead. Are you supporting your engineers? Are you giving them the resources to support all of those you know, state tracking devices, do they have to troubleshoot all of those things? I mean, those things are sort of indirect costs. Like what does an outage cost when your state table runs out? I don't know. Is it a thousand dollars a minute? Is it a million dollars a day? Is it a nickel? I don't know. You tell me, right? But there's a dollar sign, there's a dollar sign associated with that. And the less complexity in the network, the less likely there is to be strange problems. And I, I've said it a million times, I'm not, you know, against these type of things. But when you start introducing things that track state, 
whether it's a middle box that's a firewall or it's a middle box that's doing translation, you know, because those are very different things um, often combined together, then you've introduced a complexity, right? And when you start stacking those things, it doesn't just double, triple, quadruple. That's an exponential explosion of complexity. And simplifying those things down to, you know, one protocol to rule them all. And, you know, that's the only thing you have to troubleshoot. That's the only thing you're writing firewall rules for. And oh, by the way, you don't have to track the state on, you know, the port address uh, translation stuff anymore because the internet is back to the way it was supposed to be where you have end-to-end connectivity. And I think that is the real hidden gem in there and that this writes something that was sort of a shim that was put in place for various reasons. You know, they're all valid reasons, right? You need, you need a tool, then you make the tool if you don't have it already. But if you don't need that tool anymore, then you've really just saved yourself a whole bunch of extra overhead that you don't need to deal with anymore. Yeah. I talked about when you turn up a dual protocol service, all the things that you have to go through to do that. But then in the troubleshooting phase, you're like, oh, the user can go to the web page, but they only see half the web page. Well, because some of the objects were fetched over V4 transport, some of the objects were fetched over the other protocol. Which one failed? Now I have to explain to the user what's going on. We just want it to work behind the scenes and have it be magic. Thankfully, we have happy eyeballs, which can help applications and, and host OSs determine which one's faster or available and choose whichever one might work. And it, and it works well. And that's what's allowed us to get to this level of IPv6 adoption we have on the current internet. But happy eyeballs masks problems with one or the other protocol. If you had like um, a, a, an application for it to work, you needed V4 and V6, you know, in serial, you know, the pers- and the probability that each one of those was available. Actually, if you need V4 and V6 to make your application work, then you, actually your total availability is lower. If it's V4 or v6 and either one could be chosen in the happy highballs environment it increases the likelihood that a connection is made but this complexity of running two either in serial or in parallel adds complexity increases your mean time to repair and thus decreases your overall annualized availability which depending on your business could be real dollars you guys have you guys have focused on on the repair and operation side. I would actually point also to the implementation side. How much time has been spent trying to implement NAT correctly in the one of many different forms? How many times has a VPN been built, point to point IPsec VPN, where we've had to build NAT, and because we've had to build NAT. You know, it didn't work on one end because someone didn't have the translation rules. Someone didn't understand where NAT sat in the process. Does it get translated or detranslated before the firewall rule set or after the firewall rule set? What rules? Oh, by the way, let's be ASA and change it midway in the process. Like, you know, like there's all this stuff that is complexity that is there's not even it's before you ever get it into it. How much how much engineering or, you know, architect time are you spending working out the details on, on how to do NAT correctly, mm-hmm. right? So there's a cost in the implementation. There's a cost in the operations. There's a cost in, yeah. in, in the downtime if it were to be down. And as Scott brought up, if you have a dependency on both, all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, like both have to be up. And so the chances of that, you know, of, of well, your operational uptime is going to be less, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the ultimate end goal. If networks are your thing, and they likely are if you're listening to Network Collective, you should consider joining the hundreds of network infrastructure and DNS experts in Blue Cat Network's VIP community. It's a community of IT practitioners driven by shared passions and frustrations about managing critical DNS, DHCP, and IP address management challenges, which there's certainly been no shortage of this year. You'll get membership to a Slack community of peers that share candid insights and advice, as well as exclusive access to a series of monthly interactive Zoom roundtables that include folks from all over the industry, including some of our friends here on Network Collective, like Ethan Banks, Russ White, and Lars Pereiro, and more. You can join the community and register for the next conversation by going to bluecatnetworks.com certainty. Again, that's bluecatnetworks.com certainty. So over the last three episodes, we have detailed individual features and use cases of Unimus. In this last ad spot, we want to share an all-in summary about what Unimus can do for you. 
Basically, Unimus does four things. It does network automation, it does configuration backup, it does change management, and it does network-wide configuration search. First up is network automation, and the folks at Unimus think that rapid automation describes it well. It's not a framework, it doesn't require learning coding, you don't have to learn new templates. Unimus is made specifically to be easy, fast to use, and remove the barriers of entry to automation by utilizing skills you already possess. Configuration backup is an easy one. Unimus performs continual backups of the entire network's configuration, but it's more than just simple backups, as the platform analyzes each new config for changes and creates a versioned configuration history for your entire network. Now for change management, you can easily see when and how device configurations have changed. You'll be notified, which means you can be both informed and react appropriately when unauthorized changes occur. Finally, there is the config search and network auditing. Here, Unimus gives you a single interface to search any configuration network-wide. Common things like find all ports that are in VLAN 1000 or show all devices that have Telnet enabled. They literally take a couple of clicks and a few keystrokes to run. Unimus runs on-premises, is multi-tenant ready, and supports more than 140 different network device types across 90 vendors. You can get a free, no-obligation, unlimited license trial or schedule a short technical demo call at unimus.net slash nc. Again, that's unimus.net slash nc. So I think we've, I think we've made the pitch. I think that I think that one of the things that we need to speak to is something that Nick brought up earlier. And, and one of the reasons why IPv6 was delayed was because of availability. Now, even today, here we are, 2021, there are still major network manufacturers that do not have IPv6 support. Now, thankfully, they tend to not be the major players. But where do we sit today? And, and I think that one of the interesting and I think important distinctions here is we need to talk about data plane forwarding, but we also need to talk about management plane, right? And, and, and so, like, it's not just can I take a packet from one side of the box to the other side of the box and, and, and have it enter and exit and process as I need to. But then there's also the, you know, if I'm a router, can I do my uh, authentication or authorization via IPv6? Can I do um, DNS or can I do other network services, things that need to happen on the box from a management perspective? Are they up to speed on v6? Because I know that's kind of been a stumbling point for some devices as well. So, Nick, I'm going to point to you first. And Scott, I'm sure you have lots of experience as well. But, Nick, I'm going to point to you because I know that you, I mean, in the past year, year and a half, right, have gone through the process of making your management network v6. Yes. Um, um, and and so, so can you tell us like kind of what your experience has been? Yeah. So I think I would add on to what you said as a third uh, prong to that trident is that you have the, the, you know, the forwarding plane, you know, ability to move the packet. And I think that's largely a solved problem. The management plane is something that is still in the works. I think it's much better and it's very, very close compared to what it was even maybe two years ago. Um, but then the third piece of that is all of the ancillary gear that you need to run a network that sort of sits inside that management plane and having a complete IPv6 stack. So there's there's a lot of um, interpretation involved with the term, quote unquote, v6, IPv6 support. That can mean very different things to very different people. I think that, you know, from a manufacturer perspective, a lot of, you know, at least a lot of the gear that I'm seeing has pretty good support across the management plane for protocols to run in V6 only. There's a couple of exceptions that are sort of in process and depending on what equipment you're talking about, um, maybe sort of pseudo complete. But for the most part, you can you can spin up a whole network and run it as IPv6 only, like, you know, as the network equipment and have everything be supported over, um, over V6 and not even have V4 at all. Now you'll have other things that you'll have to deal with, like the fact that your router ID is a, you know, it looks like an IPv4 address. So auditing, you have to make notes of things like that because sometimes auditors don't understand the difference between this is just a, you know, 32 bit number not an actual IP address, just looks like one. Um, so that that I haven't found a workaround for um, other than noting it. But it's not a live address, so it kind of doesn't really matter anything other than policy. Um, but from the perspective of running, so like I've always said, building a network is easy. Running a network is hard. 
And when you start really getting into the bits and pieces of running V6 only, you'll start to notice that certain things just don't expect to have only IPv6. You'll have errors where it'll, you know, devices will say they don't have any connectivity because all of their checking code is V4. Um, you'll have devices, you know, that are critical devices like, you know, power controllers or, you know, other things like that, uh, embedded devices that maybe only support Slack. So, you know, how do you, if you're running IPv6 only, let's hope they don't have privacy extensions required and not able to be disabled because otherwise it's going to be pretty hard to get into things that are rotating address space. And then you've got, and then you've got management systems that um, maybe you want to talk to, you know, some of the, some of the really esoteric gear, like, uh, like optical equipment, um, DWM platforms, um, then a lot of the management pieces for those are built on on Java, and maybe the Java stack is using an old blob that doesn't support IPv6. Um, so you know, then you have to go back to the manufacturer and say, "Look, I need to be able to run this as v6 only." And the the memo, I think, the OMB memo is going to really put some teeth in that towards making those problems go away. Now. I found that just working with the vendors, regardless of who they are, if you tell them what you need and you're willing to help them, especially if you have a lab, which obviously not everybody has, but if you're able to sort of frame things as a partnership with them, you get a lot further. Um, but once you get past those pieces, right, and those are not insignificant pieces in and of themselves, but they are surmountable, then there's the human element where, you know, say field techs never seen v6 before probably don't have any of the tools to use it don't know what it is uh, and so there, then there's an education process that has to happen so there's all of these little things that are outside of the technology that are i mean honestly i've been doing v6 since like 2002 or something and some of these were like slaps in the face to me like wow i didn't consider that i hadn't thought about that you know it's because i've lived in a bubble or whatever but you know those are the things that you know they're also kind of invigorating because it's like, wow, I didn't think of that. That's actually kind of, you know, it's neat to figure th those things out. But, you know, most people aren't going to think about it that way. They're going to be like, well, I can't do V6 because, you know, this this management platform doesn't support it. Um, and, and that'll be an, an excuse that gets laid out. But that's the one I think I'm most concerned about is not the networking gear itself, because I, I think you're right. I think that a memo like this, um, we're talking about some very significant federal agencies in size. Uh, I don't care how big you are as a network vendor, you're not going to let that opportunity, you know, go away because you're not going to support um, a V6 only network regardless. I think the I think the mainstays are not things to be concerned about. If they're not fixed yet, they'll be fixed very soon um, because they're going to have to be. Um, my concern is the other stuff. Uh, your network monitoring and management platform, your, you know, your orchestration tools. Like, I mean, I know I don't I don't know the current state of this, so I'm, I'm just calling it out. But I'm thinking about something like, you know, um, Cisco's DNA center. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, like how much of that, how, like there's so much stuff that's hidden from the end user and how much of that assumes IPv4 because whoever wrote it. It's just living off the past, you know, you know, 20, 25 years of experience of single protocol networks and built that in and, and things that we're going to find along the way. Um, like, like you said, like, yeah, sure. V6 support from a, a data plane perspective and even from like the management protocols on the box itself. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of ancillary things that we discover, just like you were talking about, Nick. Like, I didn't even think about that. And I've been doing it for a long time that it's like, OK, that's going to be a problem. But I also, you know, like there are networks out there today that are running V6 only, right? Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, it, it's possible. It's not impossible. It's not, it's not, you know, some, some crazy, unbelievable task. I just think there's going to be some nooks and crannies that I think get some light on them that haven't seen light for a good 15, 20 years that we're going to have to resolve as we go through this process. Yeah. The where, where organizations have been successful running IPv6 only networks is where they're a tightly controlled environment with a lot of similarity in devices, host OSs, and software. Let's think of a modern data center <laughs> environment or yeah. an isolated <laughs> IoT network. Everything looks the same. They're all the same size and the same variation. 
where there's high variability exists, like let's say mobile desktop operating systems, wide variety of software and apps on end user devices, like a guest wireless network, probably not going to be v6 only. You know, there's too much variability. Uh, and so, yeah, in the OMB mandate, it talks about building a lab because that's only when you discover these things that are still reliant upon IPv4. Oh, I didn't realize that my in order to add, upgrade the firmware on my wireless LAN controller, I need IPv4. Or when the WAP boots up, it does DHCP, but it does DHCP for IPv4 and it gets an option to learn about the address of the controller. Oh, I didn't realize that I was getting a threat intel feed. And even though that threat intel feed may contain information about malicious domains and bad v4 addresses and bad v6 addresses, I get that thread intel feed over IPv4 transport. So, or certain security components may, you know, like PX grid or something like that may only work over IPv4. And you only realize these dependencies when you get it in a, in a v6 only lab. Many organizations have a dual of a v4 lab. They might have a dual protocol lab but they would need to turn off IPv4 to get to this level and see what's really happening. And then they'll see what what's dependent on V4 still. That's yeah, absolutely. Point. Yeah. Um, really one of the things I had done for, for about the last 12 or so years um, is every year, at least once a year, I would go and I would disable V4 on, I had a dedicated system for this and just turn off V4 and see what broke. And, you know, 12 years ago, that was a huge amount of things. It was basically an unusable machine at that point. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've noticed that the operating system problem is largely solved, right? Operating systems, any modern operating system has support. You can run it as IPv6 only with maybe minimal complaining of, oh, I don't have this connectivity, even though it still just works. Mm -hmm. But what you run into is the application pieces and the application pieces are always the hardest. Um, and where assumptions are made where like there are IPv4 addresses coded in, and this is particularly common in, you know, environments that have been around a long time, you know, it doesn't matter what they are, right? Enterprises, service providers, whatever, right? They've got things that have been around a long time. They've written custom applications or they bought something that's no longer supported, but they still need to use it. And it does not support V6 period. Um, and that's where you start to get, that's where it sort of starts to unravel. And that's why the lab piece is incredibly important. And one of the other things that you mentioned earlier, Jordan, is that the, this exception process, right, in the mandate. So to kind of go back to the mandate, they don't really call out a formal exception process. It's not clear. It basically says you need to identify the things that the will not do yeah. V6 and yeah. figure out how to replace them. Yeah, yeah, the, the the exception process isn't that you can live forever this way. It's that right. for anything that you identify that's not V6 capable, you need to submit a report for that thing and what your plan is to replace it. Right. <laughs> like that that's that's the plan, right? And so mm -hmm. like I'm thinking about like man, like how many like, you know, like mainframe and old school systems are out there that people have held on to because they are, you know, the treasured pet of the network <laughs> and, and, and like, it's just not going to be possible going forward. The other thing that they call out and I, I thought was really interesting and I think might be one of the, one of the bigger barriers, much like, you know, third party management systems and other types of things that, that, that integrate with your network, but aren't necessarily part of the, the network operating system is, is third party connectivity. <laughs> Right. So the, so the mandate yeah. is for the federal government to do it, but the federal government obviously is connecting to lots of different entities, private entities, other public entities who don't have the same mandate. Hmm. Right. But it calls out specifically in there that you need to start working with your partners to do V6 across things like IPsec VPN connections. And, th and I'm thinking like this has a pretty broad uh, blast radius. Uh, if every connection in has to be V6 only, and, and if the answer isn't that we're going to do NAT at the edge, uh, six to four, to, to work with our partners, all of a sudden, it's not just all federal agencies. It is if you have a connection to a federal agency, you are affected by this mandate because your your tunnels, your connections, your whatever, they're going to stop working by 2025. <laughs> like, it's on the list. You're going to have to start working with them. It's like and a slowdown mandate. Yeah. yeah, well, so my personal opinion is that was very much by design. Um, 
because they know how much sway. Don't make no mistake. It's widely known how much sway is there, right? How much influence is, is in that document. And, you know, my personal, obviously this is all my personal opinion stuff, right? Is that by mandating this, this is essentially greasing the wheels to push it out everywhere. Now it may not be V6 only everywhere, but it will be V6 at least dual stack to anything that needs to touch a federal network, which is a huge amount of stuff. And, um, and, and, the, and the things that go in the network. Right. You just, you just hit on my, my reasoning for doing this show. Sure. Network collective has, you know, a base of listeners who work in federal agencies, but I imagine it's single digits or maybe low double digits of people who work in federal agencies who all of this stuff is timely and relevant right now. But guess what? The number of people who work for organizations that have some sort of connection to a federal agency, um, I imagine we're getting closer to the halfway mark, right? Like of engineers yeah. who work in places that have those types of uh, have those types of connections. So this is going to affect you too, right? So like you need to start gearing up and getting ready because those people that you connect to are going to start coming to you saying that this has to be V6. So either you're going to be figuring out how to do six to four translation on your edge, or you're going to be doing the conversion over right with them. Yeah, yeah. Right now. So think about this, right? Just real sorry to interrupt. I keep interrupting you, Scott, but I've got something that I think is important. Um, if you think about this from a, the perspective of, you know, Johnny business, they have a payroll department. That payroll department probably has to work with the IRS. The IRS is going to be V6 only. How's your payroll system going to interface with that? How is your, how is your personal taxes going to work when you're using TurboTax and TurboTax is talking to the IRS network directly. TurboTax, Inuit's going to have to turn up V6, right? So if you've got V6 at home already, which you probably do if you've got a major provider and you're not disabling it on purpose, um, you know, one of the, one of the big three, Spectrum, AT&T, Comcast, right. they've all the guys, got it. The big guys have implemented it. I'm sitting here shaking right. my head at Nick because I've been yelling at my ISP because they still haven't. <laughs> this is the reason why, because there right. will be V6 only services yes. in the very near future. V6 only and V6 enablement are, you know, they're two peas in the same pod, right? As soon as you turn it on. It doesn't matter if it's V6 only, right? That just sort of is icing on the cake for someone like Scott or myself. But it means that you're going to use it if it's there because your operating system will default to it if it's available, even if it's a tunnel, right? V6 will be preferred. So once this happens, the trickle-down effect I am predicting will be pretty big and it'll be fairly quick because it has to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every corporation in the United States uses this system called EFTPS to submit taxes and it's a federal system. And yeah, you could probably, you know, convince your, as a network engineer, you can convince your boss or the CIO that IPv6 is just pie in the sky, future, you know, flying cars. But when the CFO comes to you and says, I need IPv6. I'm a business owner. <laughs> You're going to have a tough time telling that he or she, you know, oh, IPv6 ain't going to happen, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they can't do their, the, they can't submit the tax. Um, yeah. So when you have IPv6 only systems, they still need to talk to the legacy, you know, the remaining services that might be IPv4 only. And and we do that through things like DNS 6.4, NAT 6.4, 464XLAT. We can tie V4 things together over a V6 network using a variety of V4 as a service techniques. So as, an, as a network engineer and IT professional, there's a lot you have to get up to speed on quickly. Uh, to to make this a reality, I I think you just said something, and and I know it's a, a technical implementation, but I'm sure the marketing people are going to love it. But when we get to an IPv6 only or primarily an IPv6 uh, federal networks, there's going to be IPv4 as a service companies out there, and that's what they do. Uh, we'll give you an IPv6 endpoint, we'll give you an IPv6 endpoint, and we'll route IPv4 over it for you. And um, or there'll be like IPv4, you know, proxy brokers 
you know, that, that are able to make that transition. And that's going to be a, a new business model to, to persist throughout the, the however many years this is going to take to transition, I'm sure. You I guarantee you that will happen. <laughs> guarantee that will happen. I'm, I'm, the way that I've been framing this for years is that we want an IPv6 network with legacy IPv4 support as a service. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and frankly, that's the way service providers are going to build it. Yeah. So, so in, in preparation for this show, I was pulling up um, a bunch of publicly available um, uh, material from DISA um, related to the IPv6 transition all the way from way back. And I think it goes way back. But anyhow, I wanted to bring up one of the STIGs. STIGs are the Security Technical Implementation Guidelines, right? They are the, the rule book, the, the security guidelines that they use to build and check and verify systems, networking systems, operating systems, and everything on a, on a federal network. And one of the STIGs from two, uh, 2014, which was six years ago, I mean, it's just still January 4th, from 2014 was IPv6 will be disabled until a deliberate transition strategy has been implemented. That's for all Windows 7, that's a, the Windows 7 security technical, uh, Windows 7 stick. So even in 2014, it was a Windows 7 stick at that time to disable IPv6 across the board, right? And at that time, most workstations, machines, and clients' machines were, were Windows 7 based. They weren't Windows 10 at the time. Well, Obviously, I guess. Um, well, I think that's that's interesting, and I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. First, um, I think there will be a lot of people who are very shocked at how much V6 is going on on their network, and they don't know it. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's the reason why that stig exists, is because the fact that um, uh, V6 is setting up, you know, broadcast domains <laughs> on networks where computers are talking to each other over V6, and if you have filtering tools that are on the device or even on the networking gear and it's not v6 enabled then all that filtering is not happening right and so i think that i think that when we talk about that era and when i say that era it's not yep. that long ago right six, six years ago seven depending on how you're counting yep. the years right um it was a time where I, I think that still people didn't fully understand the fact that you know just leaving v6 on on a host could actually could actually present a security risk because the network for the most part will work i mean it won't route you're not going to get to different domains well, Nick's about to stop me. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Well, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. But like, but the idea is that, you know, there's going to be hosts that are able to talk to each other over V6 directly with no interaction from you at all. That's kind of the nature of the way it's supposed to work. And yeah. so uh, it's that that makes sense. And I and I think that also the reason why that's there is because you need that deliberate plan. Like, how are we going to handle V6? Yes. It, it makes sense. It's 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 easy to point at and say like, they were turning off V6 because they're, I don't think it was a concern necessarily. Like if you were running V6 as, as intentionally, I think it was more of the unintentional traffic patterns. That you exactly. Get it was a lot of it was the unintentional tunneling because yeah. windows would, if I'm remembering right. And Scott can correct me if I'm, if I'm misremembering, but if I recall windows by default would tunnel V6 if it didn't have it. So I remember years and years ago at a previous job when the security team discovered that there, what, why are we seeing these tunnels, this tunnel, the six to four tunnel traffic? And it was, it might, maybe it was Teredo. I can't, it doesn't matter, right? It was a tunnel that was happening and they couldn't, their tools couldn't see inside of it. And so as we started crunching NetFlow, we were looking and said, well, this is normal behavior, right? You don't, you won't let us turn on native V6 because your tools don't support it yet. And this is a long time ago. And so tunnels happen, right? Because people want end-to-end, -end connect, you know, operating system wants end-to-end -end connectivity. And so there was a blind spot that wasn't, you know, wasn't expected. And I think that, you know, folks that are writing security policy understand that, right? And so the only solution, the only real solution at that time there were two. One, you build out dual stack and you give native IPv6 connectivity. That way it's not in a tunnel or you completely disable it in the operating system. And one was significantly easier than the other. Yeah. Now, Windows 10, Windows Server 2019, they disable those dynamic tunneling techniques. By default, they're, they're disabled completely. Um, so nothing modern operating systems will have to worry about. So I think, I guess I just want to ask, are there any other hurdles? I mean, we've talked about the hardware. We've talked about the management. We've talked about some of the people stuff. 
Like what else is out there that like, if you're talking about jumping into a V6 network is something you need to consider. Yeah. One thing is when you start to lab stuff up, you you'll notice those things that are still dependent on V4. But when you boot up a computer, a host OS, it goes through its, you know, boot up process. It tries to do DHCP v4, but it's going to fail. So it's going to end up with an APIPA address, a 169.254, blah, blah. And, and so, but then it's going to get a v6 address because it's a v6 enabled device on a v6 only network. It's going to hear a routing advertisement and it's going to use the A, M and O bits to configure itself an interface identifier and use that router as its uh, default gateway. But there's two methods of, or there's, you know, that's the crux is how do we turn off IPv4 stack? We talked about turning off IPv6. Now, how would we turn off IPv4 and really make it a V6 only host? The opposite of what Tony just described. And so there's two methods. One is an IPv6 only preferred option in DHCP v4. So this is RFC 8925. So it's a DHCP v4 option that tells your host to turn off v4. <laughs> Don't, you know, you could shoot yourself in the foot. That doesn't sound like something that could be abused at all. <laughs> yeah, the other one is an RF uh, draft, an IETF draft that's coming that has an S flag in the RA that is uh, an IPv6 only flag to be added, but it's still just a draft, not an RFC, would still need to be implemented into host OSs. So that's a little further out. So that would be a challenge. How do we turn off V4 in the hosts to make them really be V6 only? That's a right. challenge. Because we have a bit more fine-tuned control of our network devices, or at least I like to think that we do. Mm -hmm. um, the host, the host, it becomes a little bit more difficult. And I also think that it's not something that has really even had to be considered on the host side. Like in the network side, we've had to at least, unless you really stuck your head in the sand, had to at least think a little bit about IPv6. You had to think about it enough to at least dismiss it. Um, where on, on, as a systems team, you haven't had to think about it at all. I, until you're told that you need to start configuring IP addresses on IPv6, it's not something that needs to be there unless you're reading those guidelines that Tony brought out where all of a sudden it gets called out, right? There's going to be places where it's there. But I, I think even in... In, in most organizations, the server teams haven't had to haven't had to think about it. The Windows, you know, management desktop teams haven't really had to think about it that much. And so here we are. Um, <laughs> it's time. Like, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And so that'll be that's interesting as well. And I, you know, I think about, you know, we had talked about, you know, management systems and things like that. I also wonder about like things like server management cards. Um, there's just all these little pieces on the network, uh, older ones. I'm sure, I'm sure they've, you know, been updating as, as time goes on. I'm sure the newest versions, at least I sure hope so that, you know, Dell Drac cards like support V6. I'm sure they do, but yeah, you know, there's probably some older ones that don't, <laughs> right. And, and those older ones still live in or exist out there. There's just going to be a lot of discovery. I mean, that's why you need the lab, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there's someone else in here. Someone else put it in here. I don't know who it was. They mentioned vendor support. And I think there's an interesting angle as well. Um, because I think that vendor support, you know, again, all of this, when we talk about all of these challenges, it's because of the assumed nature of IPv4. We've used it as a single protocol for so long that people assume IPv4. And so even simple things like how long is it going to take you on a support call to get someone who can who can talk V6 in a way that you can effectively troubleshoot something and isn't going to just point at V6 as the problem, like where you have to turn on IPv4 and I troubleshoot it because you know how that is, you know, like. Oh, I don't understand this. So we're going to turn this off and put it in a way that I understand to make sure that the problem is actually, you know, what the problem is. You know, you have a bad SFP or something. Yeah. IPv4 to make sure. Right. That, that's a real concern because for a couple of reasons. One, because that's your, you know, that's the outside next level support for a lot of organizations, right? You call the TAC, you call the service provider, knock, whatever, right? That's that's who you call when you can't figure it out or you don't have the resources or the time or what have you. Um, and, and the other thing is that model of saying, well, I'm just going to say turn off V6 and test it with V4. That's going to be a non-starter because as Scott alluded to earlier, you have to plumb the protocols all the way through your network at deep levels to even try to troubleshoot it, right? And if you're building a V6 only network, none of that framework is gonna be there anymore, right? So I can't just troubleshoot IPv4 because 
I have no IPv4 connectivity. It doesn't exist at my first hop router, my second hop router, and potentially even my service provider at that point. So that's a that's a support model that has to shift. Um, and I think that the, the vendors know this, right? Yeah, at least I they think, should. I think um, we're, we're poking at things because it's very early. And so when I say very early, yeah. it's not really very early. We've had my V6 as a standard for quite some time. But it's early in, you know, serious adoption. And so now, now, okay, when we say this, like, sure, this might be a pain point for the next six to 18 months. I sure hope that by that point, especially with this federal mandate, that these these organizations are going to start, you know, getting up to speed on what IPv6 support looks like for their things. And again, I would point and say, I'm not, I'm not worried about the likes of uh, Cisco and Arista and Dell and the people who make network operating systems and that, because they have to get up to speed on this. Like they, they just don't have a choice. My concern is when you have a problem in an application, when you have a problem in an orchestrator, when you have a problem in something that sits tangential to your network, but controls it or interfaces with it or whatever, those are going to be the places where I think it's going to take probably a little bit longer. The same way that it's going to take longer to get support I or get support for V6 natively, um, it's going to take longer to get the human support <laughs> uh, for those tools as well. And I think that that's just, that's just the pain point we're all going to have to live through. Like it, it, we got to do it yep. at some point and you know, like it just has to be done. Um, so I think it's good to know that it's there, but it's definitely not any reason not to move forward. Right. Like it's just something you got to do. I mean, there's no better way to learn it than to do it. And while I can say that, you know, very cavalier statement, because I've done it that way in a much more safe environment because it wasn't, you know, it was just, a di it was a different time when I learned it. And that's, but, you know, regardless of that, you know, that is the best way to learn it. And I, and I think that the, the people that framed up that, that uh, document that we've been discussing, I think they understand that. And I think that's why they have purposely and very explicitly called out lab, right? Because there is no better way to learn something, then to build it, then break it, then figure out how to fix it. Yeah, very true. Um, maybe this will maybe this will be the conduit that that finally gets you know labs and environments where people have been struggling to have them before. Maybe maybe this is a good a good um, leverage point to use with your management. Like I need a place where I can test this stuff out. Otherwise, it's all going to fall flat on its face as I try to implement it in production. We can't assume I mean, it's going to work. Yeah, I smell a business opportunity for Scott. <laughs> These guys virtual labs. I'm not kidding at all. I think that people would pay to use a virtual V6 lab, you know, it, especially if it's got real hardware in it. Right. And even even virtual hardware, like learning the protocol, you can do 100% in virtual environments. Yeah, I, I could see I could see uh, a business model that is V6 validation, right? Of of applications yep. or of networking gear, like drop it in, doesn't do everything the way that it needs to. Um, like that's interesting. So, guys, I think this is probably a good place to uh, to sum it up. This was a really interesting conversation. I think we all have very interesting jobs ahead, uh, which is great because, you know, we haven't had enough change in networking so far in the past, I don't know, 10 years. So we're just going to keep changing everything down to the base protocols. But it's good. Um, I think it's good change, and I'm excited to see uh, this mandate come through. Uh, before we um, before we jump out, I do want to give everyone an opportunity to share where people might find them and give plugs for the things that they're doing. Um, so, Nick, how about you? Where can people find you on the internet? Um, on Twitter at Forwarding Plane. I've got a blog at Forwarding Plane, and I am spinning up a uh, deep technical, uh, deep dive technical podcast called Modulate Demodulate. So it's we've got a site up. It's modem show. And we should have some content that uh, dives deep into protocols and things like that. And we discuss uh, th those types of things uh, at some point in the next probably two or three weeks. Awesome. Very cool. Um, Scott, I, there's a many places to find you, but where are the best places to find you and what are you up to? Um, yeah, at Scott Hogue. Um, I write for Network World as well and the Infoblox IPv6 Center of Excellence. Uh, so, yeah, just... Google Scott Hogue and IPv6. There'll be a variety of things that show up. I like <laughs> it's not hard to find. Yeah. Learning new things and, and sharing what I know. So, yes. Awesome. Tony, where can people find you? Yeah. Yeah. Same place, Twitter, at Show IP Interface Brief. And, of course, over in the Network Collective Slack. All right.
So that about wraps it up for today. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find all of our past episodes on networkcollective.com. Uh, if you'd like uh, new episodes to be pushed right to your device, you can su- subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and all the places where podcasts can be found. So Network Collective has jumped in with both feet into the live streaming world. Uh, you can catch the Network Collective live stream at 8 p.m. Eastern on win- Wednesdays. Uh, the address for that is networkcollective.stream. Or you can go directly to our YouTube channel, or you can join us on our brand new Twitch channel, or you can follow us on Facebook. We are everywhere. Um, so the, the best parts of every live stream are going to be posted as clips on our YouTube channel. So you definitely want to go there, subscribe, enable notifications so you know when new content gets posted and when we go live. You can also find us on the regular social media channels. We're at NetCollectivePC on Twitter. You can search for Network Collective both on Facebook and LinkedIn. And finally, if you listen to the show regularly and appreciate the content we put out, would you please consider becoming a supporter of the show? Direct support from our listeners allows us to continue producing great content while keeping advertising to a minimum. We don't ask for much, five bucks a month with no commitments at all. If you pay for a year up front, it's even less. Supporters not only help keep the show going, they also get some nice perks like access to the Network Collective Community Slack that Tony just mentioned, a private feed to the show that has all advertisements removed, and Network Collective merch at our costs, and who doesn't need a Network Collective coffee mug? So anyway, thanks again for joining us for today's episode, and we will see you next time.